0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about something that you may have seen cropping up in the news recently around the world the Insurrection Act of 1807 from the United States. Currently, the U.S. has been swept up by national protests against racism and against police brutality, to which the authorities have responded with racism and police brutality, proving that the protesters really do have a point about the whole thing. And the, and the Insurrection Act is touted as a way for the, uh, for the U.S. federal government to respond to these protests by sending in federal troops to deal with them, and uh, as such, the act has uh, been copping a lot of flack. But is this warranted, and is the act in its history as damnable as this first impression might suggest to us? History is not kind, and history is not forgiving. And even if the uh, the authorities seem to be getting away with it, rest assured of this. There will be a reckoning, and they will face their judgment. They say that history is written by the winners. And quite happily, history trends towards the forward thinking and the progressive. The people advocating for militarized state violence, brutal repression of protesters, and passive support for institutionalized racism, they will not disappear quietly into historical obscurity. No, it will be their names and their memories long after their deaths that linger as a reminder to us all of the unfeeling depravity and horrific wickedness of which humans are so often capable, ending up on the wrong side of history is one of the cruelest fates a person can suffer, but it's often very difficult to sympathize for them. as So often it's a fate that they chose for themselves with their words and their deeds. And as the President of the United States threatens US citizens with violence and with military repression, an idea that should be in the abstract unthinkable, We often hear references made to this Insurrection Act. Is the Act just another archaic apparatus for government overreach, enabling abuse of power and the suppression of citizens? Is the invocation of the Insurrection Act, in other words, an express trip to the wrong side of history? Interestingly, no, it is not. The Insurrection Act has a very long and a very mixed history, having been used by presidents all along the political spectrum for reasons that range from dastardly to powerfully honourable. So today, we're going to examine what it means to be on the right side or the wrong side of history, using a single piece of 200-year-old American legislation as a lens to explore this concept. We're going to get across a lot here. We're going to have a chat about what the Insurrection Act is, why it exists, how it has been used, and why this particular piece of US history is so very, very relevant today in the 21st century. And of course, We'll talk about how those involved with the history of this act have been treated by the long and very patient view of historic retrospection. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back, not to 1807, as you might have thought, but earlier to 1792, when in 1792, United States Congress passed a law known as the Militia Act, also known as the Calling Forth Act. And this enabled the president to call up militias or take control of state militias in the event of an invasion or an insurrection. And uh, this was a limited act that only gave the president this power for two years. And then so in 1795, the second Militia Act extended the initial two-year time limit in the first to be indefinite and also allowed for conscription. This meant that the president would indefinitely have the power not only to call up and control existing militias, but also to create new ones by means of conscription. So this power is an old one, and Washington himself actually used it to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, a tax uh, protest that was brought about when people attempted to avoid paying a new tax on, as you probably guessed, whiskey. Uh, Washington, Washington himself led this militia uh, that he raised to uh, to meet the protesters, many of whom had been uh, violent in supporting their perceived right to, to commit a tax evasion, uh, and successfully put down the rebellion with minimal casualties on both sides. And this uh, very firmly established the sovereignty of the nascent US government uh, and, and its ability to uh, exercise political power over dissenting citizens who were in this case, again, just attempting to get away with tax fraud. Uh, but we move forward now away from the Militia Acts and towards the Insurrection Acts, with act which replaced them. And for that, we've got to skip forward to not 1807, but 1804, to a scene that I'm sure you're familiar with now in the wake of the extremely popular musical Hamilton. Aaron Burr. Was a, decor- a decorated war hero from the American Revolutionary War who had served as Jefferson's vice president, but was obviously most famous for the duel he had with his rival Alexander Hamilton. Burr shot and killed Hamilton during this duel, uh, which ended both Hamilton's life and uh, Burr's own political career. Uh, he-, he had far-reaching political ambitions, but it uh, turned out that you know shooting someone dead wasn't such a good move from a PR perspective, and so that was that for Burr's hopes for you know further politi- political advancement. And after the duel, Burr fled west to the Louisiana Purchase, where he engaged in what we believe today to have been some light treason, readying a force uh, designed to seize land out west and rule for themselves. Honestly, the, the, the detail's are a little shaky on exactly what Burr was up to, but it wasn't anything good. Uh, mustering forces appearing to be fermenting, you know, what could be accurately called an insurrection. And when the US government led, of course, by President Jefferson, found out about this, they were spurred into action. Now, while Jefferson's political rivals, the Federalists, were happy to interpret the US Constitution pretty liberally, their view was if the Constitution didn't prohibit it, then it was allowed. Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party, on the other hand, they were much more they were much stricter with their interpretation of the Constitution, saying that if the Constitution didn't allow it, then it was prohibited. And as a result of this, Jefferson decided that he needed congressional authority to respond to Burr's insurgency. He wasn't going to act unilaterally. He wanted the US Congress to give him the power to mobilize the military in facing a domestic threat. And the result was, as you might have guessed, the Insurrection Act of 1807. Interestingly, however... Just over a week before the Act was actually signed into law, Burr was captured anyway, and so the Insurrection Act was never actually used against him. It was never actually used for its original uh, purpose, I suppose, to uh, to deal with the situation uh, around Aaron Burr. But it remained law, however, and its contents uh, empowered Jefferson and the presidents that came after him to take action against perceived internal or domestic threats. The Act principally grants three powers to the the, the President of the United States. Number one, the power to deploy federal Federal troops to a state at its request in order to combat an insurrection against that state. Number two, the power to deploy federal troops to a state with or without the state's request, where it had become impossible to enforce the law. And finally, number three, the power to deploy federal troops anywhere that an insurrection threatens a US citizen's constitutionally granted rights, when the state authorities are unable or, critically, unwilling to do anything about it. So... Broadly speaking, either the state can ask the president to help and send in the troops, or the president can send in the troops if things get bad enough, or importantly, if the president believes that the states are failing in their duty to uphold constitutional rights. That's another instance where they can send in the troops. Now, you might think such instances are rare, but they are not, because in the 200 years since this law was enacted, it has been invoked over 20 times. But what makes it really fascinating is this. It has been invoked by many different presidents for many different reasons, some of which fall on the most extreme ends of historical defensibility. In other words, the Insurrection Act has been used to do some very, very noble things while also enabling horrific wrongdoing. So let's go over some examples of when the Insurrection Act has been invoked over the years and paint a bit of a picture of the legacy of this law While we uh, while we attempt to Have a closer look at what it means, again, to be on the right or the wrong side of history. And we begin with Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, who even today remains a highly divisive figure. He was, of course, the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. Go and have a listen to episode nine to hear all about that. And after going from soldier to statesman, he became a president known for his populist small government political philosophy that railed against government corruption. However, he also dismantled the Federal Reserve, he strengthened the power of the executive and most infamously signed into law the Indian Removal Act, which led to the trail of tears as tens of thousands of Native Americans were forced to relocate west of the Mississippi River. So even today, his legacy is a mixed one with scholars and historians and politicians unable to come to a broad consensus on Jackson's lasting impact. But one thing we can say about Jackson is that he didn't mind the idea of sending federal troops to enforce the law. When South Carolina threatened to secede during his presidency, Jackson had Congress pass the force bill, which empowered him to send in the troops in order to force South Carolina to comply with federal law. But he did also invoke the Insurrection Act on more than one occasion, for example, in 1834 when a labor dispute arose during the construction of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. Indentured servants were being used to build it and complaints about the conditions led to tension and ultimately conflict, which got so bad that the Maryland state government requested the assistance of federal troops. However, the most famous or rather most infamous instance of Jackson invoking the Insurrection Act came before this in 1831 in 1831 during Nat Turner's slave rebellion. Nat Turner was an enslaved preacher from Virginia who organized a slave revolt in 1831. He covertly recruited other slaves to his cause and used songs to communicate secret messages to, you know, throughout his followers. And after gathering and stockpiling weapons, Turner and his rebels launched an attack against the local population of Southampton County in Virginia. The aim was to free as many slaves and kill as many slave owners as possible. And so on the 21st of August in 1831, Turner and his 70 or so followers went from house to house, killing every slave owner and and freeing every slave that they came across. They were armed with axes and knives and clubs, even fence posts. And all in all, they killed around 60 people while trying to meet Turner's goal of spreading terror and alarm amongst the slaveholding populace. Now, the government response, as you might imagine, was swift and it was decisive. Jackson, under the Insurrection Act and at the request of Virginia's state government, sent in federal troops to support local militias. And while Nat Turner's rebellion certainly involved wanton killing and a lot of bloodshed, the display of force put on by the deployed troops was beyond anything this slave rebellion could have achieved. Hundreds of African-Americans, the vast majority of course were enslaved, were killed by militias and the mobs that came with them. This, re- this was regardless of their involvement in the slave revolt in the first place. Many were ki- a great many were killed a great many miles from where it had even taken place. They were shot or they were summarily executed or even beheaded and had their severed heads mounted on spikes. Turner's revolt lasted three days, while the killings that followed lasted weeks. Fabricated stories about armies of blacks descending on state capitals swirled around, provoking whites into greater acts of violence against African-Americans, against slaves or not. And it took two weeks for a military military general to finally call for an end to the carnage. Now, Nat Turner, he managed to escape the chaos initially, but was captured six weeks later and tried and sentenced to death. After which he was hanged, drawn, and quartered, like a like a medieval traitor. And uh, some stories indicate that he too was beheaded, like so many others had been at the time. I'm not attempting to claim that Turner's rebellion was by any means bloodless, because it certainly wasn't. Um, but but to see such an overwhelming show of force from the authorities that resulted in weeks and and, and weeks of of racially motivated, racist killings after Jackson invoked the Insurrection Act, well you can hardly claim it was proportionate and this is just the first example of many when it comes to the insurrection act playing a uh, a very a very critical role in racial conflict in the united states as we'll see but because indeed it was the insurrection act that formed part of the legal basis for president abraham lincoln to wage the american civil war to preserve the union and ultimately abolish slavery lincoln expanded upon the principles of the Insurrection Act itself in order to legally take the fight to the secessionists, deploying federal troops to combat the insurrections from the South and enforce federal law. Now, obviously, that situation is a little different from all the others that we're going to discuss today, as the conflict blew up into a full-scale civil war rather than, you know, a short-lived insurrection. But nonetheless, it's important to note that the legal basis for fighting the American Civil War has its roots in the Insurrection Act, as without it, Lincoln couldn't have legally deployed troops into a state that didn't want them. And this principle of the Insurrection Act, the power for a president to use their own discretionary powers, their own their own initiative, uh, and ignore the wishes of the states, this proved to be very important in the coming years after Lincoln's assassination, after the Civil War had ended, because once the fighting was over, and as we move now into the Reconstruction era, a period of, of of American history. A new organisation rose to prominence, an organisation that sought to undo many of the progressive federal policies uh, during this period, during the Reconstruction era. Uh, An organisation that was, and still is today, a racist terrorist group with a white supremacist agenda. I'm, I'm of course, talking about the Ku Klux Klan. And in the years after the American Civil War, the KKK was committing all manner of atrocities against African-Americans throughout the South and, and further beyond, seeking to undermine principally The 14th amendment the 14th amendment the united states constitution one of the most important pieces of legislation of the reconstruction era and and indeed broadly more speaking in united states history Um, the 14th amendment uh addresses uh equal protection under law Uh, citizenship rights was designed to uh to protect and support um freed slaves for people who had been uh, you know formerly enslaved um, and its impact has been far-reaching, even even today to the to the twenty-first century. It's played a, a huge role in a number of landmark court cases. Of course, Brown versus the Board of Education in the fifties, which we'll talk about a little bit later on in this episode. Uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, the, the landmark abortion case uh, from nineteen seventy-three, and more recently in two thousand fifteen, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, the, the 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 landmark case about same-sex marriage, which ultimately legalized uh, same-sex marriage throughout the United States. Anyway. Back in this period in history, back in the Re- in the Reconstruction era, the KKK were involved with in in violence, assassination, and murders. Terrorist threats against African Americans. They did everything they could to keep African Americans as politically disenfranchised, dis- disenfranchised as possible. And in states like South Carolina, they did this with the tacit support of the state government. It seems that. You know, these governments were not doing all that much to stop the racist violence that the KKK was perpetrating. And President Ulysses S. Grant, therefore, seeing the inaction and the unwillingness on the part of, of South Carolina specifically to do anything about the KKK, he invoked the Insurrection Act in order to respond. Federal troops were deployed to South Carolina where they rounded up KKK agitators and brought them back to be tried in federal courts, uh, because obviously they knew that were they to be tried in in courts in South Carolina, they would get a slap on the wrist and be be, uh, sent on their merry way. So the federal forces that that were rounding up these racist agitators, they were further supported by the Third Enforcement Act, a new act which again built on the Insurrection Act in in empowering Grant to take appropriate action to, to defend the new 14th Amendment. And Grant's intervention into South Carolina both further normalized unilateral executive military action within the U.S. and was extremely effective in suppressing the KKK, who would un- unfortunately, you know, return. They would rally and rise to prominence once again in, in the early 20 in the 20, early 20th century. But Grant didn't stop there when it came to using the Insurrection Act to directly interfere in state politics, because in 1872, when the Louisiana gubernatorial election was hotly contested between Republican William Pitt Kellogg and Democrat John the uh, Grant was forced, ultimately, to once again interfere using the Insurrection Act as a as a basis of his power to do so. The election itself was pretty suspect, to be honest, all sorts of shenanigans, chicanery, and the long and the short of it was that Kellogg, the Republican, won. And remember, Republicans in those days were, broadly speaking, the progressive ones, while Democrats had represented the interests of racist slaveholders for decades. You can go and listen to episode 56 about Robert Smalls to hear an explanation of how and why the Republicans and, and the Demo- Democrats ended up switching places, and, you know, the Democrats now being a progressive party while the Republicans, broadly speaking, have become the the, the gun-toting racists. Um, anyway, Kellogg won the election, as I say, uh, but McHenry refused to accept the result of the election, going so far as to attempt an armed overthrow of Kellogg's government in what became known as the Battle of Liberty Place. 5,000 armed men, known as the White League, turned up in New Orleans and began an insurrection against the Louisiana state government. Now, after some fighting between the White League militia and the New Orleans police and, and Louisiana state forces, Grant once again invoked the Insurrection Act. And in doing so, he sent federal troops to suppress the insurrection and the White League surrendered almost immediately. And Grant maintained a federal presence in Louisiana to enforce the results of the election and maintain order. And these troops actually remained until 1877, if you believe it. So deeply ingrained was the opposition to Kellogg and his Reconstruction government. But once again, and, and the point that I'm trying to trying to draw your attention to here while talking about Grant and his use of the Insurrection Act was that the act had been used by the president to fight off racism and defend the 14th amendment further complicating the act's history and its position as either a force for right or for wrong in u.s history and certainly today we can vindicate grant his use of the insurrection act in 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 its defense of the 14th amendment it's its defense of the you know the progressive some of the progressive politics of the reconstruction era and it certainly does go to complicate the issue a little bit further when attempting to box the uh, the insurrection act into you know one camp or the other, good or bad. And I think by now you're probably beginning to see that it really, really is not as simple as that. However, to confuse things even further, now we will move towards the 20th century uh, and uh, talk about some other instances of the insurrection act that took place towards the end of the 19th and into the uh, into the early 20th century that uh, are perhaps a little less morally defensible, um, and then others that are a lot less significant, shall we say, not only when it comes to race relations in the United States, but also just Broadly speaking, not not as important as others. For example, uh, when President Rutherford B. Hayes invoked the Act in 1878 to deal with what was known as the Lincoln County War Uh, in 1878, two prominent factions of various families and gangs were engaged in what was essentially a a glorified turf war in the New Mexico Territory. They're both out seeking influence and control over the burgeoning cattle market out west, and and the conflict blew up after a series of killings and revenge killings took place between the two factions. They both had their own militias. Uh, You might have heard of one of them. The Um, Regulators, the famous outlaw Billy the Kid was one of them. And Hayes uh, invoked the Insurrection Act in an attempt, essentially, to quell the conflict and disorder brought about what seems largely to have just been an overblown gang war. So this is an example of a um, of an invocation of the Insurrection Act that doesn't necessarily carry the same moral weight one way or the other. So I just wanted to bring that to attention because these these situations do exist. You know, there, there were invocations of the, of the act that don't necessarily carry the the same amount of of moral baggage here. But uh, some of the areas where it certainly did um, fell outside of the very complicated and, and uh, unfortunate history of race relations within the United States because the Insurrection Act was also invoked to deal with labor disputes, um, much like the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal affair that I mentioned earlier. When strikes and protests became violent and rioting began, a couple of instances again in the late 19th and early 20th century. In 1894, the Pullman Strike saw thousands of railway workers strike against the Pullman Company, their employers, grinding railway traffic to a halt. Now, the Pullman Company had lowered wages without lowering the rent in their uh, their company towns. Of course, they owned the properties that the workers lived in. Um, And the strike that this brought about eventually grew to include a quarter of a million workers across 27 states. The newly formed and very short-lived American Railway Union coordinated a boycott of Pullman-owned railway hardware uh, and continued to support strikes throughout cities across the country. Now... President Grover Cleveland wasn't thrilled about this, as you might imagine, with the railway shutdown crippling the US economy. And so he invoked the Insurrection Act, therefore, to send in federal troops to end the strikes and break up the ARU's activities. Cleveland argued that he had the authority to do this based on his constitutional obligation to make sure the mail got through. It was all sent on the railway, of course. And uh, in addition to his claim that you know he had a, a constitutional duty to ensure the mail uh, the mail was delivered, he also uh, claimed that these strikes and uh, this industrial action, uh, was it was a threat to public safety. As you might imagine, however, the striking workers, you know, they weren't they weren't huge fans of the fact that the military had turned up to uh, to break their strikes and, uh, and bust the union. And so there was violence and there was rioting and many of them were killed by federal troops. Nonetheless, most Americans at the time supported Cleveland's actions, even though history has gone on to take a rather dim view of a president who, uh, you know, eff- effectively put federal troops at the service of a private company. And this wasn't the only instance of this sort of thing happening. Another such labor dispute took place in uh, in 1913 and 1914, when the Colorado Coalfield War uh, saw President Woodrow Wilson deploy federal troops in order to quell a miners' strike organized by the United Mine Workers of America against the Rockefeller-owned Colorado Fuel and Iron. Working and living conditions for the miners were pretty awful. And so in 1913, the UMWA organised industrial action to protest. Now, miners, they suffered high mortality rates. They were subject to mismanagement at the hands of corrupt bosses. And they, they were coerced and threatened into towing the line. And this led to ultimately, um, in, in 1913, the beginning of a very large strike. And after CF and I brought in strike breakers and enforcers, Things began to grow violent and eventually the Colorado government requested that Wilson send in the federal troops who had since 1903 been known as the the National Guard. Wilson did so. Um, However, he did attempt to mediate the dispute rather than simply suppress it with force. Uh, This was an offer. His offer of mediation was roundly refused by the Rockefellers and and, and CF&I. Um, Wilson, Wilson did have sympathies with the miners and their union and collective action, but was ultimately unable to, to, to aid them in any meaningful way. He did deploy troops under strict orders to remain impartial and keep the peace, but these orders obviously didn't stick once they were there because the Colorado government used the federal troops to force the miners to, to disarm. And eventually the union had to surrender unconditionally when it finally ran out of resource and ran out of money. These labour disputes hardly reflect well on the Insurrection Act, as they were used to continue to, you know, oppress workers. It's its role as a political tool, uh, you know, a, as various presidents used it to support strong-arm union busting. Uh, it, it's not a good look for the Insurrection Act to be sure, and again, sort of puts a couple more, a uh, couple more tally marks on the wrong side of the ledger. But as we move now into the 20th century, further and further into the 1900s here, the act was once again cast in a new light during the civil rights era. I mentioned before the, uh, the, the landmark court case Brown versus the Board of Education. And uh, you, 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 you may have heard of it. And if you have heard of it, you probably know about the crisis that came right after it with the Little Rock Nine. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its ruling on Brown v. the Board of Education, which held that in keeping with the 14th Amendment, racially segregated schools were unconstitutional. The decision made, uh well, legally mandated, the desegregation of all schools and universities throughout the entire country, and it prompted the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP, to enrol African American students in previously all-white schools. Three years later, in 1957, nine black students had been enrolled at Little Rock Central High in Little Rock in Arkansas, and these students became known as the Little Rock Nine. They were slated to begin there in September with the beginning of the school year. However, seemingly in keeping with the oldest traditions of the American South, racist protesters swore to blockade the entrance to the school And prevent the students from going inside. These racist segregationists were supported by a racist state governor, Orville Forbus, who deployed the Arkansas National Guard due to, as it was said, imminent danger of tumult, riot and breach of peace. Never mind that it was the protesters that he was in support of that were causing that danger. Apparently that part isn't important. Anyway, the Little Rock Nine, they turned up at the school on the 4th of September and found the entrance blocked By the Arkansas National Guard, not to mention the enormous crowds of racist protesters who were shouting and spitting at these literal school children who were just trying to go to school. The school itself condemned the state government, as did, as it turns out, the mayor of Little Rock himself who petitioned President Dwight D. Eisenhower to intervene. And so, on the 24th of September, Eisenhower, under the Insurrection Act, mobilised the 101st Airborne Division to enforce the Supreme Court ruling and defend the 14th Amendment by ensuring that these kids were able to go to school. And so it was that the Little Rock Nine were escorted into their high school by federal troops, although, of course, their hardships didn't stop there. They were subjected to racial abuse and vilification for the entire school year, both verbal and physical. And most of this torment, of course, came from many of the other students. And this is what I was talking about when it comes to being on the wrong side of history. Imagine choosing to be one of the students who threw acid in the face of Melba Patillo, one of the Little Rock Nine. Imagine being choosing to be one of her tormentors who locked her in a toilet stall and threw burning bits of paper down on her. And consider too the legacy of Orville Forbus, the Arkansas governor, who today is remembered as a defiant and an overbearing racist, or at very best, an utter coward who pandered to hardline racists while seeking re-election. And he will forever be remembered as being on the wrong side of history, thanks to his nearsighted populism, his reactionary and his damnable racism that caused the Little Rock crisis in the first place. It wasn't just Eisenhower who invoked the Insurrection Act to defend the 14th Amendment during the Civil Rights era, however. John F. Kennedy did so too, multiple times in the early 1960s. For example... During the Ole Miss riots of 1962, when racist Southern segregationists protested and rioted in response to the enrolment of James Meredith at the University of Mississippi. Meredith, who was an African-American war veteran, bore witness to racist segregationists driving through Oxford, Mississippi, flying Confederate flags, beating African-Americans and warning that the South shall rise again. Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett, an avowed racist, firmly cemented his place alongside Forbes us on the wrong side of history when he said this, <clears throat> There is no case where the Caucasian race has survived social integration. We will not drink from the cup of genocide. We must either submit to the unlawful dictates of the federal government or stand up like men and tell them never. No school will be integrated in Mississippi while I am your governor. And as it turned out, but it was just about as wrong as it is possible to be. While Kennedy sought out any way that he could to avoid bringing in the federal military, eventually it proved that there was just no other option. A military guard accompanied Meredith as he enrolled in the University of Mississippi, and with good reason too. Thousands and thousands of racists rioted in the streets, firing guns, burning cars, and murdering two innocent bystanders, a French journalist and one other uninvolved onlooker. And the chaos caused Kennedy to call in reinforcements and eventually the riots were suppressed and Meredith was able to enroll properly. However, throughout his studies, he was guarded by hundreds of federal troops 100% of the time, all the way through to his graduation. And a similar thing occurred during the Kennedy presidency in 1963, this time in Alabama, during an event known as the Stand in the Schoolhouse Door. Alabama Governor George Wallace, whose most infamous quote is segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, personally blocked the entrance to the University of Alabama to prevent two African-American students, Vivian Jones and James Hood, from entering the building to finalise their enrolment. The whole thing was a great big media stunt, of course, designed to capture the attention of other rusted-on racists like Governor Wallace, but it took President Kennedy invoking the Insurrection Act, again, using the provision that allows the president to do so in contravention of the wishes of a state to get Wallace to move. Kennedy issued Executive Order 11111, which federalized the Alabama National Guard, bringing it under his control as president and forcing Wallace to finally give in and move. The National Guard remained on campus to defend the students from threats from the newly energized Ku Klux Klan, which further enraged Wallace and caused him to speak out further, enjoying the spotlight offered to his racist views. But again, consider how Wallace is judged today, two decades after his death. We aren't quick to remember how he renounced his segregation forever views in 1974. No, instead, we remember him for what he was, a contemptible racist who held up the march of human progress. And it's President Kennedy and his administration who, in this instance, fall on the right side of history, invoking the Insurrection Act in order to defend justice and equality, increasing the act's already very muddy reputation as a political tool. But its story, of course, is not over as we move closer to the present day. During the late 60s, after the assassination of Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson invoked the Insurrection Act many, many times to combat race riots across the United States. As the civil rights era drew towards its climax in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the 4th of April. Widespread protests and riots spread across the country, and Johnson invoked the act three times in as many days to quell what was happening in places like Washington, Baltimore, and Chicago. Protests erupted in over 100 American cities, bringing about the biggest societal disturbance in the US since, effectively, the American Civil War. But these protests, these riots, they were at their most intense in DC, Baltimore, and Chicago, as I say, and these were the places where Johnson invoked the Insurrection Act. At the request of the respective local authorities, Johnson deployed federal troops to contain the uprisings in these cities as protests grew into riots and saw buildings and cars damaged and destroyed. In some cities, federal troops joined local law enforcement authorities in suppressing both protests and riots. And honestly, the parallels between then and now are staggering, except for the fact that, of course, the Insurrection Act at the time of recording hasn't yet been invoked in 2020. Thousands and thousands of protesters and rioters were arrested, and hundreds and hundreds were injured, and the death toll was in excess of 40 lives. It did, however, prompt the swift signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which made it a crime to, by force or by threat of force, injure, intimidate or interfere with anyone by reason of their race, colour, religion or national origin, handicap or familial status." The most recent invocation of the Insurrection Act, however, took place in 1992 under the presidency of George H.W. Bush in response to the protests and the riots that took place in Los Angeles in April and May that year. Protests and riots began after the acquittal of four LAPD officers who beat the hell out of Rodney King. It happened to be caught on video and it inflamed public attention in the lead up to the trial. When the officers were acquitted, six days of protests and riots swept through LA and they weren't quelled until Bush Sr. deployed federal troops. Over 12,000 people were arrested and almost 2,500 people were injured and 63 people lost their lives during this week of violent clashes with law enforcement. But it did take the deployment of federal military personnel with the Insurrection Act to bring the unrest to an end, as LA and California didn't have the resources to handle it on their own. And so more recently, the Insurrection Act has been used as a way for governments to directly intervene and put down protests and riots that have been triggered by race relations in the United States. And as we turn from the history to the present and examine the current situation— There are a few interesting things to note when it comes to the Insurrection Act, its history, its impact, and its legacy. The current administration has thrown around the idea of invoking the Insurrection Act in response to the current protests, which has drawn condemnation and criticism from far and wide. The Act has, as a result, become something of a symbol of tyranny and oppression for those who may not know the full story behind its history, and it's difficult to blame them. On the face of it, Deploying the military against your own people is a move right out of the the playbook of the authoritarian dictator. But one of the reasons that I wanted to make this episode so very much was to open people's eyes to how things like the Insurrection Act, things that seem so authoritarian, a tool for the iron-fisted tyrant, these things can actually be profoundly important as a tool for good. And this is because at the end of the day, the Insurrection Act is a political tool. It is a tool of those in power, and it reflects on those who would use it for their chosen purpose more than upon the nature of the act itself. Without the Insurrection Act, would Eisenhower have had a clear path to ensure the Little Rock Nine went to school? Would would Kennedy have been able to ensure that James Meredith enrolled at Ole Miss? If we look further back, the Insurrection Act was directly responsible for the suppression of the first KKK and was one of Grant's tools for fighting ex-Confederates during the Reconstruction era. But the other side of the same coin has seen workers exploited and further oppressed, and it casts a long shadow over the woeful history of race relations in the United States. And this is the point that I want to bring us to as we close out today's episode. It is not correct to rail and rage at a piece of legislation, a tool that over the last two centuries has wrought both good and evil. Instead. It is those who invoked the act for their specific purpose, who made the choices they did to seek their goals, that instead consign not the act but themselves to the judgment of history. Being on the wrong side of history is not just a life sentence. It is a sentence for all eternity. Even if we don't know the names of the people who spat in the faces of the Little Rock Nine, we know they did so. And long after their deaths, we remember them for all the wrong reasons and we will scarcely forget them all the evils they so directly helped to perpetrate. And the reason that I say this now is that we live in the present, in the here and now, in a fluid and dynamic situation that develops unpredictably and much of the time without warning. So, consider carefully your choices. Decades ago. Perhaps someone would just end up an anonymous, hate-filled face in the background of a grainy black and white photograph. But that's not how things work anymore. In an era dominated by social media, by photographs and video recordings that document our lives more precisely and uncompromisingly than ever before, being held accountable for your actions has never been more straightforward. Nothing that is happening today is new. Racism is as old as human civilization. As Will Smith puts it, racism is not getting worse, it's getting filmed. But you, dear listener, you have the choice to affirm yourself as being on the right side of history. You have the choice to ensure that your eternal memory is not consigned to go the way of Jackson, Forbes, or Barnett. To live long after your death as one of shame, and ignominy. I have seen firsthand the impact that a legacy of shame has on the generations that follow it. The descendants of slaveholders, of Nazis, of racists and other blights on humankind's conscience. These descendants bear a heavy burden of guilt. History is not kind, and history is not forgiving, and the long view of what we do here, now, today will be judged with the fairness that only the fullness of time can bring. History is written by the winners, and the story of the Insurrection Act shows us that the winners are those ultimately who act with integrity and respect, in opposition to hatred and to wickedness, and in support of fairness and justice. And while it's unlikely that any of us will have our names writ large in history, you can And you should do everything you can to secure your legacy. And the story of the Insurrection Act and its strikingly mixed legacy is, in my view, a very powerful lesson on just what it means to be on the right side of history. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Insurrection Act of 1807. I know this episode has struck a more sombre tone than many others, but I feel it appropriate given the subject matter and given the situation, the state of affairs uh, in the United States and around the world at the moment. And uh, I, I do hope that you learnt a thing or two about this act and about its uh, its history and the context its, its context of it of its invocation or threatened invocation today. Uh, at the time of recording, it hasn't been invoked. Maybe that will change, and if it does, maybe I'll update this episode. But uh, as it is at the moment, still a very interesting thing to get across and a very a very interesting thing thing to think about what it means to be on the right side of history. So I'll leave you with that and, of course, leave you with all the boring housekeeping stuff that comes at the end of every episode. history.net is the place to go to listen to old episodes or get in touch with the show. You can also subscribe on iTunes or on Spotify. There's a contact form on the website if you want to suggest a uh, topic of your own. And uh, the Half House History merch shop is uh, is still going. Well, actually... Some stuff is running out of stock, nearly out of magnets, uh, running out of T-shirts in a couple of sizes as well. So do get in quick if you want to uh, place an order, because I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to restock at this stage. So uh, if you've been thinking about it, now's a good time to do it. So uh, avoid, uh, avoid missing out by anything being uh, being sold out there. And of course, if you want to support the show more directly, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash half history and I pledge there for as little as a dollar. A month, you can uh, you can help to support this show financially. And I very much appreciate all the people who do so. We've had a couple of new executive producers as well join the ranks. Their business cards are winging their way out to those new producers here and now as we speak. So thank you, to, uh, thank you so much to everyone who's supporting the show financially and to all the people who've just given it a listen. If this is the first episode you've listened to, if you've uh, maybe been drawn into it by the state of current affairs, welcome. By all means, welcome. And I do hope you'll stick around for a couple more in the future. Go back to listen to some older ones as well. Um, uh, And uh, I do hope to have your company uh, in more episodes of this stupid podcast uh, as the weeks and the months continue. Anyway, that is that for this week. As usual, I'm going to leave you with a question posed on Reddit. A dumb joke to perhaps lighten the mood after having (laughs) things have got a little little bit more uh, serious than we anticipated with this episode here. A question posed by Reddit historian Contingent Contagion, who asks, We all know about the civil rights movement. But what did the civil left's movement do?